Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hillary Milnes, and joining me this week is Andy Dunn, the co-founder and CEO of Bonobos. Thanks for coming in, Andy. Thanks for having me. So we're, we're still close to the beginning of the year, um, and Bonobos had a pretty big 2017. Do you mind, let's just start, um, let's get right to it. And can you take us back to the decision-making process that, that led to the Walmart acquisition? I'm sure that was a pretty big debate internally. Yeah, a lot of mergers happening last year. I got married in May. Oh, wow. We announced, <laughs> the, Walmart, we announced the Walmart deal in, I think it was June. Mm-hmm. So let me take you back a little bit. It was February of last year. And we were right on the cusp of doing a private equity investment deal where we would have continued on an independent path with the company towards what I've long talked about is the goal, which is an IPO. Right. And maybe a week away from signing, I got a phone call from a friend who asked me to do a reference for him on someone that I knew. And I did the reference and then he said, how are things going? And you have this choice point when someone asks you that where you can say, oh, things are great. And frequently they're not great. And I chose to just be honest and say, I'm really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. It's someone that I know reasonably well. And he's go, he said, why? And I said, because we're doing this deal and it's really stressful. And he said, what kind of deal? And I said, and, you know, the next investment round for Bonobos, he said, would you ever talk to us? And it was a guy named Preston Bottomy who works at Jet. Mm-hmm. And I said, Walmart Jet? Like, I'd never really thought of that. You guys really are focused on selling other people's brands, not on building brands. And moreover, Walmart seems like kind of a strange fit with Bonobos. And he goes, we'll just have the conversation. And I said, well, I've known your boss, Mark Laurie, for a long time, the founder of Jet.com, who came on board to become the CEO of all of Walmart US e-commerce. And he's someone that I really admire. And so we sat down maybe a week later, and Mark and I had this amazing mind meld around how the future of e-commerce would include amazing brands being a part of the story, not just selling brands, but owning great brands. And the analogy that we make is Netflix, where five years ago, Netflix introduced Orange is the New Black and House of Cards, and people were like, what are you doing? Are you trying to become HBO? It didn't really look like their typical business model. And now I think 2018 is the first year where over half of streamed content on Netflix will be exclusive proprietary magical content, and that's really our vision for Walmart is to do the same thing and bring magical content that we own that's proprietary to enhance the overall allure and magic of the platform. Mm -hmm. So, so fast forward, the deal happens. What changed immediately for, for Bonobos? You know, it's a big difference. If you think about Bonobos' employee base, it's millennials who live in Brooklyn, right? That's probably our number one demographic. And I think the understanding of Walmart that we have in cities like New York and San Francisco, where I've spent the last 12 years of my life, is that Walmart is this evil empire, right? And I think that in exploring that and understanding it, what I discovered was there are some really credible reasons to be critical of Walmart from their past, right? It's now the world's biggest company. With that comes enormous power and enormous privilege. But what transpired in 2007 is really inspiring. So Hurricane Katrina came in, There was a debate at the Walmart corporate office around what do we do? The then CEO, Lee Scott, said, guys, just send the trucks. 
and truck after truck started going down and playing a role in New Orleans that our federal government wasn't even playing mm. to take care of people, get them goods that they needed. And I saw it this year. You know, Hurricane Harvey came in. Walmart contributed $25 million on the spot to Houston. Then I think I could lose track of all the names. Hurricane Irma right. came to Florida, another seven to 10 million. Same thing in Puerto Rico. And Walmart is now actually providing a role in Puerto Rico that you could once again argument argue that the federal government isn't playing. Then you talk about sustainability. You know, by 2025, they're looking to be net zero on waste. And then on diversity and inclusion, there's massive progress being made at a company that has a lot of work to do coming from its heritage of being more homogeneous. So it's been an education journey that I've been bringing our people on to understand that the Walmart that maybe they think they know from conventional wisdom amongst people that live in cities like New York and San Francisco is actually much more of a force for good than they may realize. Right. So you're saying there's a lot of good stuff that people don't talk about. Correct. And uh, so, and for you, was that like a convincing factor? Did you have to learn more, a lot more about that? Or like, were you skeptical at all at any point in all of this? Hugely. Yeah. I was quote unquote, <laughs> one of them. I was massively skeptical. And then Mark Laurie asked me to meet with his boss, the CEO, Doug McMillan. And there was this crazy snow day in February of last year. We met at the guide shop, the Benabos guide shop on Crosby Street, got to meet Doug. And then Mark, Doug, and I all went out for dinner around the corner right over here at Balthazar. Mm-hmm. And I was just blown away by Doug and the conversation that he took me through where when he started at Walmart, I think the minimum working wage at Walmart was $8 and they went from eight to nine, nine to 10. Just two weeks ago, they went from 10 to 11. And every time they've done that, Wall Street has punished them because they're like, why are you paying your workers more? Mm -hmm. And the market capitalization of the company has taken some hits every time that's happened. And Doug's answer to me on, on why do that was it's just the right thing to do. And I was inspired by that. And I see a increased mantle of corporate social responsibility that the company is taking across things like wages and sustainability and diversity that I find inspiring and frankly think should help us at Bonobos raise the bar. So I began to feel that it was really aspirational for us to belong to Walmart at the same time as I knew our employees would be like, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. So it was this very cognitive dissonant time in my life where I was working really hard to get this deal done, but knowing full well that a lot of our customers and a lot of our employees would be very confused by what we had just done. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the summer working through that change management, making sure that the magical culture of Bonobos stayed in the building, persuading our customers that this was a good move and why. And then finally in September, I got to relax a little bit and Manuel and I went on our honeymoon. Nice. <laughs> was it harder to convince the employees or the, or the customers, would you say? The customer thing is fascinating. So we had a strange test that we ran on how our customers would react that we didn't intend to run, mm-hmm. which is that I think it was in March, the deal leaked. Jason mm-hmm. Del Rey from Recode somehow is a genius who mm-hmm. figures out everything and leaked, you know, wrote a story about how Walmart was going to acquire Bonobos reportedly for $300 million. He knew a lot. And what happened when that leak came out is we got to gauge the customer or the consumer popular reaction. And there is a large outcry at that time. And what we saw was there was a couple of days where we saw an impact on the business. And then 72 hours later, it was totally back to normal. Mm. And so you hear about this 72-hour news cycle thing. 
And so we were nervous the day that we announced the actual transaction. It was a wild day because Amazon the same day announced that they were acquiring Whole Foods. So it became this fascinating. Yeah, it became this fascinating juxtaposition of an online retailer going offline, an offline retailer going more online. And we had a team of ninjas set up in the office that we had rented to announce the news. We don't have enough room in our office to seat all of our people. Mm -hmm. So we had kind of a SWAT team in the back of ninjas who were on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on email, responding as quickly as they could to the comments and trying to offer some perspective on why we were doing it. 72 hours, there was a lot of disruption. There was a lot of noise on social media. There were lots of people to respond to. And I understood their concerns authentically because those had been my concerns personally before I learned you know, the things that I learned in the process. And then more or less within two weeks, the business trend had resumed and there was no, no change to the growth rate that we were seeing. So what do you think that, that meant that people kind of forgot or did you do work to sort of explain what you had learned about the company and why you'd come to that decision or was it kind of a mix or both? I think what it is is that there are certain people who love to get feisty Mm -hmm. and God bless them, right? We need the people who have the strong reactions in this world. We need them to have their voices heard. And now because of social media, everyone has their own publishing platform that may or may not be representative of the wider population. Mm-hmm. And it may or may not even include people who are really customers of the brand, right? So sometimes some of the most indignant people aren't really voting with their dollars for the brand to begin with. Mm-hmm. They may just be outside observers of the dynamic or they may care about the brand even though they're not customers. And so I think it's important to be aware of, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the book, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, but they go through all these biases that we have as human beings, mm-hmm. survivorship bias, recency bias, availability bias. And I think that social media is a combination of recency bias, which is what you've heard recently, you feel like might apply to all of the future, mm-hmm. and availability bias, where what you're not seeing on social media is a record of all the people that didn't tweet, all the people that saw the news and didn't say anything, right. which is in and of itself tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So mm-hmm. you just say you're the loudest people. Exactly. And so I think we were fortunate that that was a, a tiny pocket of people. And I'm grateful to them because it it forced us to tell the story that I just told you. Mm-hmm. So so now following the deal, what can Bonobos do? What can it? Where can it go as a brand that it wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? I know uh, Walmart has a lot of tech and innovation arms. It has a lot of in-house uh, focus on that area. Does that open a lot of doors for you? Um, y- you know, where have you sort of explored those that potential and those possibilities? The biggest thing for for me on why this deal was exciting is not actually directly Bonobos. It's the chance to take the model that we invented at Bonobos of building brands through the internet Mm -hmm. that I very, very nerdily call digitally native vertical brands, Mm -hmm. DNVBs, and to take that ecosystem and to become the leader in terms of building a collection of brands across different verticals in that ecosystem. So we're starting with Bonobos and with ModCloth, which was acquired just a few months before Bonobos. It's an indie vintage women's clothing brand with really inclusive sizing. 
And we hope that those two brands are the beginning, maybe kind of like the orange is the new black and the house of cards in the Netflix example. Maybe House of Cards isn't the best example mm. these days. <laughs> but to, to go out and look at all the different verticals out there and see, can we acquire a brand in this space? Can we build a brand in this space? How do we start to build our own magical proprietary content division? And so for me, that's the primary reason we did this was to build that collection and to bring our way of building brands onto a bigger stage. When it comes to Bonobo specifically, there are a few ways that we get better. First, we get a safe and permanent home, which is not to be underestimated. You know, being a standalone brand these days is hard. Taking a standalone brand public really makes you beholden to quarterly swings and quarterly results. And I think we've seen a few brands with great IPOs that have made it out, particularly in activewear. So if you look at the last 10 years, under Armour and Lululemon, I would point out. Mm -hmm. We've then had other brands that have gone public that are apparel without the same total addressable market as, say, a Lululemon or underwear. Take Vince as an example. You have a couple of bad quarters and your stock gets destroyed. Mm. And so the first thing that I think about for Bonobos is having a safe home where we can take a long-term view rather than being beholden to quarterly earnings you know, which is very hard as a singular brand to get right quarter after quarter. The second piece is innovation coming not just from what we do at Bonobos, but from within the broader ecosystem at Walmart. And so one of the things that Mark has launched is called Store Number 8. Mm -hmm. And Store Number 8 is our technology incubator. It's almost like an internal venture capital firm, except where we fully fund concepts in AI, um, in virtual reality, in whatever applications we see that can transform the future of retail, and whatever the learnings are there, whatever the insights are, the technology products and services that come out of that, we can then apply to Bonobos. So there is going to be an enhanced ability to innovate. And then lastly, there's just an amazing ecosystem of talent and learnings and insights about how to do e-commerce when we're a part of this bigger platform. So just this week, we're announcing one of our first moves a key member of the Bonobos team is headed to Modcloth. And that sounds like a small thing, but for me, it's actually really exciting because I'm a big believer in how do we develop people's careers and challenge them. And it's a win-win when someone gets a step-up opportunity somewhere else within the ecosystem. And it also benefits both sides because it creates a hole where someone can be promoted into it. It also means that that individual who's going gets a bigger opportunity. Mm -hmm. Historically, I've cheered people on, but they've been going somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> and now I get to cheer them on and they're going to be a part of the, the broader ecosystem of what we're building. Right. And so, so going back to that, the digitally uh, native vertical brand that you mentioned, um, you kind of coined, coined the term um, and Bonobos was one of the original brands to, to really you know, chart the ground in terms of what a modern retailer could be, could be, you know, direct to consumer, mostly online, etc. When you started the company, did you foresee, like, what type of, of exit you, you looked for an IPO originally? So has that changed, like, with the course of the last 10 years, has that changed a lot? You mentioned, like, as a public retail brand, it's really hard. So when you look at the, the crowded market of, of direct to consumer brands, where do you see them all going? I was about to say, humbly speaking, we actually were the first, but there's first. nothing humble about that. <laughs> so I okay. guess that yeah, yeah. hits the humble <laughs> criteria. Yeah, so 2007, it was a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we've seen some amazing brands that have really popularized the model. Uh, the Warby guys in 2009, mm-hmm. they came through Bonobos at the time and said, we want to do this in eyewear. And I thought, wow, that seems like an extra hard category to do it because of prescriptions. What they've done is incredible. I remember one of the first days I started hearing about the concept of brands doing this in mattresses. And I met the Casper founders and the Tuft and Needle founders within the same week. And it was like, wow, okay, people are converging on opportunities. And yeah. then got to meet the ladies who started away and the ladies who started Lola and Pinrose and seeing what happened in Razors with Dollar Shave and Harry's. And over the course of the last 10 years, I think I've invested either personally or through this little angel investment vehicle with friends in 28 digitally native brands. So I've tried to be helpful to the ecosystem, partly because I know how hard it is. And the concept back in 07 and the reason why it's so contrarian is if retail traditionally is so tactile and if stores are about foot traffic and distribution, how do you actually get people to care, let alone love products that they can't see in person and that they can't discover by walking down the street? And yet the paradox is, is that if you can do things internet driven, you can bundle the service level and physical product that ideally has got some kind of an innovation because you are going direct to consumer in such a way that the ultimate customer love for that brand is higher. So as measured by net promoter score, so nerdy metric, Mm -hmm. the net promoter score of brands that are digitally native tends to be between 60 and 80. And what that basically means is that 60 to 80% plus of people are fanatical about the brand and that the number of people that don't like it is minuscule, right? So the way that the metric is calculated is on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend this brand to a friend? And anyone who rates you a 9 or a 10 is a promoter. And anyone who rates you a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6 is a detractor. So it's pretty cruel, mm-hmm. which is like something that's 5 out of 10 is considered to be a detractor. But it makes sense because if you ask me, hey, have you seen the movie Coco? And I said, eh, it's okay. That counts as a non-recommendation. Right. You'd be like, I don't want to see that. Yeah. Versus if I was like, it's amazing, and my dad was crying at the movie, <laughs> which is actually both are true, <laughs> he'd be like, I need to go see that. And that virality, that is created by that. And the cult that you build, when you have 60 70 80% net promoter rating, is something fundamentally better than what you can create in a traditional brick-and-mortar model. Now, the problem is, is you have to raise a lot of money to build these brands, right? right? Bonobos, Warby, Casper, Dollar Shave, what do we all have in common? We all have raised more than $100 million. And that's hard to do. It's hard to raise. It's hard to return that much capital to investors. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was very proud that we made all of our investors money, but it was a horrifying decade, wondering if that would be the case, let alone would we make our employees money and the people that put in the hard work. So about five years ago in 2012, I started dreaming of building a multi-brand ecosystem and collection where we could learn from each other, where it wouldn't cost as much capital, where there would be leverage in the customer service and the fulfillment. Started to feel like it would be safer for brands to come together. There would be safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. And I then continually tried to screw up our company by trying to do that multi-brand strategy at our company. We launched a women's brand that was really cool called AYR, Air.com. Mm-hmm. We've we actually had Maggie Winter on the podcast before. I heard that. Yeah. And we we didn't actually have the capital to fund it. Uh. Luckily, Maggie is a formidable entrepreneur. And I told her, 
had dinner with her one day and I said, I have bad news. We can't, we can't keep you, but we could find a way to spin you out if you could raise capital for a spin out. And she was like, I've been dreaming about that for six months. When do we start? Mm. So by trying to do multi-brand on just the Bonobos balance sheet as a standalone company that itself wasn't yet generating much cash, although we did reach our break even before we sold, we almost screwed it up. Mm-hmm. By joining forces with Walmart, which is the biggest company in the world, we now have the balance sheet and the resources over time to thoughtfully build out that collection that I call the LVMH of digital brands. Mm. So in terms of what you mentioned about the the amount of capital that you raised and how hard it was to, to earn that money back. Would you talk to someone who's founding a, a direct-to-consumer brand today and kind of turn them against that? It just seems like the space has gotten so crowded and there's been so much, like you can't fund an apparel brand like it's a tech company. And I, it seems like venture capitalists are kind of getting smart to that, um, especially as, as you mentioned, you know, you start with Casper and then more mattresses and boxes start to pop up. Do you, like, does it feel like this, there's a wall that's going to be hit pretty soon? I wouldn't turn them away, but what I would say is I think the new way to do it is to be way more capital efficient if you can, mm-hmm. to skip the era where you're just trying to buy customers through Facebook advertising and really expensive marketing, right. and instead focus on how do you get a product that is so profoundly better than what's available that you don't need to spend as much money on marketing it. So making sure that the fact that it's digital means that there's an innovation in the product itself, the offering. Mm -hmm. For Bonobos, that really has been the ability to offer a more personalizable fit, custom clothing without the weight of custom. For Warby, it was really cutting out a really onerous monopoly and offering cool eyewear at a much better price point. Um, And what I see is some digitally native brand entrepreneurs are just making a brand in a category because they think the digitally native model will be their salvation, but the product isn't differentiated. There, There's problems in pursuing that because you're just not gonna get the attention. But if the digital model can actually create a disruption in the overall offering, the bundle of product value service, then I cheer people on. And I think over the last decade, it's been amazing to see how capitalism works because it's gone from a pants company to an eyewear brand, you know, to a couple of people dabbling in razors and mattresses. Mm-hmm. And yesterday I saw um, a page out of a presentation called The Davids that Marvin Traub put out. Mm-hmm. And it has, I think, 200 digitally native brands on it. And every single vertical has got three, if not five, if not 10 players. So I, I do think it, it becomes a more pointed question. What makes you different? And why does your brand deserve to exist when there's there's now so much competition? Right, because they can't all survive, and they, or they can't even all reach a certain number, like amount of sales. Totally agree, and that's part of our belief. It, um, Mark and I believe, is that not everyone's going to make it, but that doesn't mean that the brands don't have viability. It just means that it's hard, or they're underfunded, or undercapitalized, and that's partly why we think a mergers and acquisitions roll-up strategy could make sense because there will be some great brands that deserve to make it that don't for idiosyncratic reasons. Mm-hmm. So let's let's take that opportunity to talk about your new role at Walmart. So you're still the acting CEO of Bonobos, mm-hmm. but what can you what's um your new title at, at Walmart as well? So my Walmart title is SVP of Digital Consumer Brands. Uh-huh. And, and 
And so it's a dual role where I'll continue to shepherd Bonobos, although to run the day-to-day, we've just put two uh, brand presidents in in place, Brad Andrews, who's our merchant, Mickey Anvirol, who's our head of marketing. Mm -hmm. They're running day-to-day operations. And then that frees me up with the other half of my time to shepherd the portfolio, which really is about incubating great brands and acquiring great brands. So that means you're basically on the lookout to take this 200 brand index of of direct-to-consumer brands and and pull out the ones that you think could actually succeed. Is that right? That's the dream. So what does it have to, what does it have to have to stand out to you? Well, the consumer cult is the first part, right? Like there should be amongst the people that know it, and it doesn't have to be a big group, but amongst the people who are customers, a cult level of following Mm -hmm. for the brand and Typically, what I'll ask an entrepreneur for to prove that is just to show us their net promoter scores because you can see it right there, whether it's in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. Mm-hmm. As that temperature gauge goes up towards 90 or 100, that thermometer is a direct indicator of how much people love it. And our enthusiasm goes up with every 10 points, it goes up times a factor of 10. The second part is just the repeat customer behavior. So those should be related, Mm -hmm. but how often are people coming back? How many purchases are they making in a year? Because I I feel like you can love something but not come back, and that's kind of like sort of love. Mm. But real love, you know, like in a marriage, you keep coming back every day, right? Like the way people feel about Apple, like they're thinking about it every day. Um, Sadly. (laughs) sadly or not right or the way you feel about netflix Mm -hmm. you know you're coming to it a few times a week when it comes to a great digitally native brand doesn't have to be every day but it's something where it's top of mind enough and vital enough to someone's life that are they making two or three or four purchases in a year and because of whatever that product is are they using it every day or a couple times a week so that's the second piece is the repeat part of it And then the third piece is actually the most important, which is just the quality of the team and the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And if those three things are there, right, that customer passion, amazing entrepreneurs, and the right kind of economics on the way that the repeat behavior works and the purchases and all the math of it, we get pretty, (laughs) the actual sales, you know, we get pretty excited. I think the last thing I would just throw out there is have the entrepreneurs been thoughtful shepherds of capital? So if they raise a lot of money, have they found a way to make sure the value of the company is going to is going to enable their investors to do well or if they've been more capital efficient and more thoughtful that can be really exciting too those entrepreneurs tend to own more of the company they would make more money in a transaction and it shows that they're they can do it the scrappy way so you know both can work but we're looking for that sort of financial thoughtfulness and discipline as well so you're not looking for any particular category it could technically be any product as long as the product is good and people like to buy it Exactly. Yeah. We're looking at the whole ecosystem and thinking it will make sense if we're successful with this to own brands across all the different categories, Mm -hmm. you know, coming back to that Netflix analogy, there's dramas, there's comedy, there's documentaries, you know, there's, it seems like every part of the overall entertainment ecosystem is getting built out with Netflix original content. Right. That's the way I think about what the future might be for digitally native brands and e-commerce and Mm -hmm. for a collection of those brands. A little bit of everything. Yeah. You mentioned the LVMH of, of digitally native brands. Are you looking on the prestige side? Is it just sort of to elevate the idea of what a Walmart brand is? 
Well, I think LVMH, the reason I say that is I think that in their own way, all digitally native brands are premium. Mm. You know, you think about Warby, it's such a fascinating case study. It's $95 eyewear, but it's thought of as cooler and more on trend than, you know, lens crafters, which might cost double that. Um, And then you look at some of the eyewear that goes for $300,000, $400,000, $500,000. It's not obvious that it's any better in terms of the consumer experience than maybe owning three or four pairs and rotating and having a little bit more individualization in your style. Mm -hmm. So for me, LVMH isn't about price, although it is in terms of that assortment. But when I apply it to digital brands, I think it's about premium. And premium doesn't necessarily need to correlate with price. It needs to correlate with the magic Mm -hmm. and with the quality of the experience. That makes sense. And so as you are looking to flesh out these these brands and this portfolio, including Bonobos and ModCloth itself and then whatever else is to come. We, we kind of touched on this, uh, what, what Walmart is doing with store number eight, but how do you plan to build out build on that experience and make it better with, with technology in, in ways that, that you can now because you have the, the Walmart money bags? The honest answer to that is I don't know yet. I don't know what the innovations are that we haven't seen. What I would tell you is that in November of last year, we launched a new mobile app at Bonobos. And we very quietly, we haven't made a lot of noise about this yet, built in a feature that we call the Outfitter that enables you to take anything in your closet that you've bought from Bonobos, freeze a couple of those items, and then hit refresh and we'll show you other items that could go with that to create an outfit. Or if you don't know anything from us, pick an occasion you can take the current day's temperature if you want as a part of it mm-hmm. and say, okay, going out tonight versus going to work, you know, versus going to Sunday brunch. How do you think about what to put together to put looks together? Because I think the first era of Bonobos has been about how do you just get great items that fit? Great pant, great shirt, great suit. The next era is how do you actually style it? And the guide shops are a big part of doing that in person. We now have 48 of those guide shops. But what about for all the people that don't want to go or don't have time or aren't close to one? And that's what the Outfitter is for. It actually is the most advanced personalization engine for a vertical brand and menswear out there. But we don't have enough learnings yet and haven't spent enough time with it yet to really blast that out. We're not confident that we're all the way there yet. So the insight that we could build that personalization engine really was about a year ago when we started to think about how do you take all the power of technology personalization and then marry that to our merchants who actually keyed in item by item what goes together so the best of kind of human intelligence with the actual algorithm Mm -hmm. we think that's a big innovation we just launched it we'll see we don't yet know the things coming down the pipe out of store number eight we have some ideas but i don't know yet where it's coming from i just hope it's coming so but back on styling i think that comes up all the time we hear from a lot of technology companies that plays right into personalization with AI, you know, if, if a company can, can help you get dressed in the morning, that's, that's a good thing, but it has to work really well for, for someone to actually use it. But, um, in, in terms of like menswear in particular, do, is that something that, that you think men will, will really actually use? Um, you know, we talked about where the digitally native brand space has evolved. What about menswear itself? Um, as you've been in the game for so long, what do guys want now? Yeah, I think it's interesting. My core premise about men is that we're lazy 
um, as a gender, mm. particularly when it comes to clothing, right? So guys will do the bare minimum of what it takes to actually spend time thinking about clothing or fashion. Mm -hmm. And we built Bonobos around that idea that if we can get guys, this was the beginning, a pair of pants that fit, they will come back again and again. So men are hunters when it comes to clothes. You find something you like in a particular category and you just repeat. You're mm -hmm. like, that's my jacket, those are my <laughs> jeans, that's my shirt, those are my socks. Guys love that. And once they find that, they're very loyal. So we figured that out and we figured out how to take that from a pant to a shirt to a jacket and build this more personalizable fit because we're direct to consumer. We offer a lot more sizes and a lot more silhouettes and a lot more color and print. So the overall assortment is much more wide and deep than it could be in a traditional retail environment. So we've got that. But the next part of the story is how do you put it together to express your individuality? And most men's brands say, look like this. They show you an aesthetic and you're supposed to belong to that aesthetic. Mm -hmm. We try to flip that on its head and say, look like you. Our job is to actually provide enough different kinds of great fitting basics, as well as enough diversity in the fashion offering that we have that you actually can express your style regardless of what guy you are. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly rare. I mean, we have a brand where the preppiest guy ever from Washington, D.C., can be, you know, rocking, you know, colorful short with a tucked in gingham shirt, you know, and he's wearing boat shoes and that look can come together or, or you can be in a black, you know, tailored fit pair of jeans and a black super fine shirt um, and wearing, you know, your flat build cap and with a totally different aesthetic or you can be wearing the, the most handsome tuxedo which i tried to do on may 27th of last year <laughs> for our wedding and it's very rare that you have a brand that hits all those different use cases mm -hmm. so what you pointed out is it has to work really well and we didn't endeavor to make that work from a technology standpoint well because we believe that the best technology and artificial intelligence on the planet right now are human beings we're the ultimate ai mm -hmm. right right so it doesn't scale in the same way it doesn't scale in the same way and so what we did was we said let's get that right and we built the guide shops we built the ninja service team and we are scaling the guide shops up to 48 but to your point as we hit 50 guide shops and we think about going to 100 how do we make this available to everyone and that's what the outfitter is built to do in the app and it's pretty cool it's it, it may not be at the level yet where we can say this is the best experience ever in personalization in menswear, mm. but the ability to freeze items and refresh others and to actually have someone deliver a personalization technology that does something, there's been a lot of talk about it. We hope to actually deliver an experience that guys actually use. Right. That's the goal, of course. Um, I think we're almost out of time, but um, before you go, while we were watching this, everyone's watching it. it, feels like Walmart versus Amazon right now in terms of private label brand acquisitions. Um, I want to ask you who wins. Obviously, you're going to say Walmart. So what what is Walmart going to do to win? So here's what I think, and here's why the Walmart Bonobos thing lined up interestingly. When we started Bonobos, we would have argued that the future was digital online purely. Mm -hmm. And if you'd met me in 2008 or 2009, you would have met an insecure, arrogant kid who was saying, 
it's all about the internet. Stores are dead. You mm-hmm. know, a bunch of superlatives that come from not actually having been immersed enough to have developed some judgment and humility and wisdom. Yeah. Everyone had kind of eat their words on that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what I discovered as we started to build the guide shop, it was one of the more humbling things that's happened that we ran an experiment of putting a couple fitting rooms in our lobby and discovered that guys still love to touch and feel and try on product. And then how do we marry that to a model where we offer so much granularity in the sizing and in the fashion and all of a sudden it dawned on us as we experimented with it that we could build stores that don't have clothing stock Mm -hmm. which is like the dumbest idea since (laughs) pants on the internet like people still say to me bonobos has stores where you can't shop and it's like well you actually can shop but we just don't fulfill the goods it in that in the store and if you think about it why would you want to do your own fulfillment unless you're going to come home and rip open the bag and put on the clothes Mm -hmm get it the next day or the day after at work or at home. So when I think about Walmart, what Walmart has that Bonobos developed is a true commitment to both sides of the aisle, the web and mobile online side, and then the store side. And I think the best companies are going to be amazing at both. And in an interesting way with Walmart's unfair advantage of the 4,000 plus stores that they already have, Mm -hmm. If we can catch up and eventually push the envelope and innovate on the e-commerce side, we have the unfair advantage of being strong at the brick and mortar side, which is very hard to catch up to in terms of what it means from a supply chain standpoint, what it means from an instant gratification standpoint for the people that do want that, what it means for the tactile component of the experience. So the last thing I'll say is that the most fun part of the battle right now to watch is in grocery Mm -hmm. because people going back to the era where we were just selling books online. Well, first it was like, well, it can't be electronics. And then that went online. And then it's like, well, it can't be clothing. And then that went online. And now it's like, well, it can't be food. And the biggest battles now are around food. Well, it's pretty cool to be the largest grocer in the country mm-hmm. and to have that as a starting point. So the reason why I think we win, and I don't think it's going to be overnight, is because it's about both. And if you have the humility to realize that and the, the nuance to realize that it, it's not just what you're good at that you have to continue to be good at, but that it's getting better at the other side while continuing to leverage your core. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it's actually pretty interesting that Walmart have, both has the head start of being the world's largest offline retailer and now has gotten absurdly committed with a phenomenal leader and mark in place to really play offense, nail the fundamentals on the e-commerce side. So does this mean we'll be seeing Bonobos guide shops in Walmart? You know, <laughs> that's a great question. I think I think it's a different customer in terms of the price point. Right. But we're definitely thinking about how can we do some exciting things, leveraging what we know how to do in the Walmart store. Mm-hmm. Pick up maybe. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming in, Andy. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, and thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangol. Next week, we'll be running a six-episode podcast series in honor of New York Fashion Week, where we'll be hearing from the event's biggest players, including designers, agents, and casting directors. The series will be running in a special New York Fashion Week daily newsletter, so to get our coverage directly in your inbox, be sure to subscribe on glossy.co. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and leave us any feedback you have. 